0: Thank you for joining us for what is a milestone episode of A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman. Ever since we started our look at all the singles produced by Saw, one record has been hanging over our heads, and now we've finally reached it. I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website chartbeats.com.au and this is Matthew Demby. Matt, how does it feel to have reached this particular track?
1: It feels like we're turning a corner into new territory, Gavin. This track is fairly universally seen as a landmark in the Saw story, but not in exactly the same way as records like You Spin Me Round or Say I'm Your Number One or Never Gonna Give You Up. And this song also represents a shift that I referenced, if a bit obliquely, all the way back in episode one of this podcast, when I talked about my own journey with Saw and what some of the changes in 1989 meant to me as a fan. Whatever you think of this record, and it evokes pretty passionate reactions both for and against, it's undoubtedly important to the overall story. And
0: so, given that status, we decided it was worth dedicating a standalone episode to this song. In many ways, it represents a major crossroads in the story we're telling. There is a clear before and after this record. Not because it was the biggest hit, although it did well enough. Not because it was the debut of an act that went on to be a major force. pop music. Far from it. Not because either of us particularly love it, more on that later, but because this song represents a noticeable shift that we'll see play out in the rest of the 1989 singles. We can only be talking about one track. Matt, put us out of our misery and introduce the damn thing.
1: Yeah, let's dive right in. It's the one, the only Reynolds Girls with I'd Rather Jack. Let's have a listen.
0: By the start of 1989, Stockhake and Waterman's Stranglehold on the British pop scene was undeniable. In fact, the three singles we're talking about this month, Help, from last episode, I'd Rather Jack, and next episodes This Time I Know It's For Real, were all in the top ten at the same time. Along with a fourth track, which we'll get to in February, Too Many Broken Hearts. So being responsible for 40% of the UK top 10 really showed Saw's dominance at the time. But that success came despite and not because of support from radio and the music industry at large in the UK.
1: Yeah, with their emphasis on dance-inspired pop, Saw had alienated the one demographic that controlled not only late 80s radio playlists, but also most of the music press and who made up a lot of the industry awards voters. That is, mostly straight middle-aged men who loved rock music and mostly hated pop and dance so in other words the same demographic that headed the anti-disco backlash in the late 70s and these blokes weren't too thrilled that dance and pop were back with a vengeance and dominating the charts but they weren't the only ones who were feeling antagonistic right now Pete Waterman was on the offensive over a string of awards show snubs and the refusal of radio one to play Saw's hugely popular records
0: now we've seen previously that saw weren't ones to run from a fight when the clubs who had traditionally supported them started to turn due to the trio's commercial success Stock and Waterman released Roadblock which we discussed back in episode 26 That was their way of taking a swipe at, and making fools of, an increasingly snobby club scene that didn't think Saw could still produce cool and edgy dance records. And with I'd Rather Jack, they were doing something similar.
1: And interestingly enough, Pete Waterman was front and centre in a lot of the publicity for this single. He was quoted heavily in the Reynolds girls' early press appearances, so it seemed this record was as much about him and his grievances as it was supposedly about the girls singing it. He told Smash Hits... Fleetwood Mac are the typical example of your boring old farts that are always on the radio. We just wanted to say to the DJs, excuse me guys, just remember now and again that you are 40 year old blokes with CDs in your cars and there is actually a whole big generation of teenagers out there who want to hear the latest dance stuff, the latest hits, unquote. But it wasn't all about the kids and their need to shine. Pete, who Smash Hits delighted in pointing out was 42 at the time, also had some very personal axes to grind. Quote, look at the Brit Awards, we've been kept out, our artists have been kept out, Yaz, Broz, all those people kept out to make room for Tanita Tikaram and Enya and Steve Winwood. I'm sorry.
0: Now, I can understand Saw's frustration, especially Pete's frustration. Growing up in Australia, radio was heavily biased towards classic rock and Aussie pub rock. Something we've mentioned before on the podcast, I would obsessively listen to Take 40 Australia, which was our version of the Radio 1 chart countdown because it was one of the only ways to hear the biggest pop hits of the day. And like everybody else, I'd sit there with my tape deck, ready to hit record when a song I liked came on. As it turns out, Australian radio played a part in the genesis of I'd Rather Jack. Matt Aitken will
2: explain how. The song we'd written was basically uh, Peter had been to Australia. And whenever uh, any of us went anywhere, we, you know, uh, how, was, how was it in America? How was it in Geneva? And we talk about the pop scene and what we'd heard on the radio, what we'd seen on the telly. Uh, and, you know, we'd sort of absorbed this into our great over picture of the world of pop. And Pete had been to Australia and he said, pop music out there, mate, you can't get played. It's all, it's all to do with uh, FM radio and selling Levi's and it's all dire straits and it's all Eric Clapton and da 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 and pop doesn't get a look in. So we wrote this song that was uh, basically anti-corporate radio. So Australia inspired I'd Rather Jack? Yes, it did. Very much so.
1: Yeah, Australian radio was the absolute worst at the time. (laughs) I'd given up listening to it. It was just a sea of rock or easy listening for the oldies. It wouldn't be until well into the 90s that dance finally cut through in a big way on radio here. I think we can very safely say that I'd Rather Jack had absolutely nothing to do with that programming change, but Saw was certainly a factor in the popular resurgence of dance and pop music as we headed into the new decade.
0: Now, I once described I'd Rather Jack as a protest song, and sure, it's not on a level with war or we shall not be moved, but it is, in theory, the younger generation speaking out against the status quo pun intended. Here's former PWL MD David
3: Howells talking about the purpose of I'd Rather Jack. Our PWL career was a a fraught radio, let's say. It's really interesting. I'll give you some statistics. Radio 1 at the time, uh, that's this period of 87, 88, 89, 90. If you were big, successful, and had the big hit record, your maximum play you could get on Radio 1 was... 24 plays a week. That was maximum exposure. Kylie, I would say, probably got seven plays a week at best, even when she was number one and number one and number one. Radio, you commented yourself earlier, looked down upon Stock and Waterman and PWL and our whole concept of fun, youth, and innocence. They were looking for slightly more dangerous stuff. And we, we struggled at radio. We had a, a, a wonderful promotion team, sharp end productions they were called and our focus was not radio at all our focus was television because the feeling was my feeling certainly was that it's almost like the tyranny of radio in a way because radio you've got to get through the producer you've got to get through the station philosophy and you've got to get through the dj tv if you can get to the producer and they put the artist on a camera the public have a direct connection they're making the instant decision there's none of this filtering going on. What we knew was we had visually striking artists who had charm and whatever else and the talent to convince on television. So our efforts were aimed at television. And we got massive TV. But radio for us was a struggle. There was a lot of prejudice. And we just went around it. And the other thing we used at the time, bearing in mind that record shops were the all-powerful meeting point for music and public, we did a lot of promotion in record stores. And that worked. But we had to get around this lack of reaction from radio, which was basically based on, yeah, but that's not real music. But once the record gets to the top of the charts and it sits there forever, you know, the public, know.
0: So was I'd rather Jack, well, let's have a swing at the radio because they're not playing us anyway and it's not going to hurt us. We're not going to kind of bite the hand that feeds because they're not feeding us anyway. So why don't we take a swing at them?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we, we, we were not afraid to be critical. I mean, if you remember, again, the guys did it with Roadblock, where we had this situation in clubs and they not, what, what would they call it? The lack of credibility. To us, the only credibility was being in the top 10. Credibility is only your hit record. And uh, as you know, with Roadblock, Pete planned this thing to send up the club DJs and just go, you, you think you know what you're doing? Uh, not really. Try this. And everybody fell for it. Same thing with uh, I'd Rather Jack, it was us poking fun. We were not afraid to poke fun at people and go, wait a minute, come on, this is about the audience. This is not about credibility. As you know, the ads we talked about uh, the, 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 when the uh, BPI dropped the producer the year award from the Brits Awards, just because they didn't want Stockick and Waterman to win for the fourth year or whatever it was, was ridiculous. And that's when we did the ads, more or less saying, yeah, sorry, guys, you've lost the plot here.
0: I mean, I guess the difference between Roadblock and I'd rather Jack, the obvious difference is that Roadblock was Stock and Waterman sending a message. I'd rather Jack was Stock and Waterman sending a message through two teenage girls.
3: Yeah, you could say that. But it was these girls had this kind of typical teenage fun, let's have a laugh attitude and look. Uh, and that song just fitted, they fitted the song and the song fitted them at that moment. And uh, it did well. Now,
0: as I mentioned in that interview with David, the big difference between I'd Rather Jack and Roadblock is that in the case of the latter, it was eventually released under Stock and Awardman's own names. This statement record, however, was fronted by a PWL act. And not just any act, but one of the most debated and discussed acts to ever release a single produced by Saw.
1: Yeah, it's quite a story. So who were the Reynolds girls? Sisters Ashling and Linda Reynolds were just 16 and 18 years old when they fatefully crossed paths with Pete Waterman. But that meeting was no accident. Ashling, who was still at school, and Linda, who was one year into a hairdressing job, used to hang out outside a Liverpool radio station where Pete did his show on weekends, hoping to grab his attention and become pop stars. The pair had some show business connections. Ashling once had a walk-on part in the TV show Bread, and the girl's sister Debbie had a role on TV soap Brookside. But Linda and Ashling wanted more than that. They were true PWL fans and told Smash Hits they wanted to be the next Melon Kim. They recorded a demo of their vocals using a song written by a friend and repeatedly handed that tape to Pete. Ashling told Smash Hits, "'We'd always wanted to be pop stars. "'I think we just happened to be in the right place "'at the right time with the right person. "'We were lucky. "'I mean, we went to Pete Waterman "'because he's the best in the business.'" Linda added, "'But you never really think it's gonna happen to you, "'especially not with Pete Waterman. "'We'd always looked at people like Mel and Kim "'and thought, yeah, we're gonna be like them one day, "'and we meant it. "'That's why we wouldn't give up with the tape.'" Pete admitted that he pretty much only played the tape in his car by accident, but the rest was history. When PWL called the girls, there were tears, and not to foreshadow too much, but I'd suggest that those were probably the first of many tears before this chapter was over. Linda told Smash Hits of her excitement over the call, I just couldn't speak, I just stopped talking. Ashling added, I just acted dead normal for a few days then burst out crying and couldn't stop. But then when we walked into the PWL building, it was unbelievable. The whole place was like one big family. We just became two new members, unquote. They got to work quickly. Linda said to number one magazine of their debut record, I told Pete Waterman what we wanted and he came up with the goods first time. The truth is, the song predated the girls' signing by some months after deciding not to place it with his other acts. Pete saw the girls as the right ones for the project. He told the Liverpool echo, "I met the girls at a show and thought we may as well use these two." He was a bit more enthusiastic in Smash hits, indicating that their lack of shyness in pushing their demo played a part. They had the personality for it, he said. They're two very young, cheeky girls, two real scouser scallywags.
0: There is a rumor that Sonia, who is also on the scene by this stage, was at one point considered as a candidate to perform I'd Rather Jack, but that it was ultimately felt the song wasn't right for her. Now, I don't know how true that is, but I have been told that Sonia attended the PWL Christmas party in late 1988, so the timeline tallies. But it's clear that whoever was going to perform I'd Rather Jack had to be young and from the demographic that the song's lyrics purported to speak for. And that was a demographic PWL were catering to more and more.
1: Yes, earlier in the source story, very young kids had been an incidental but important market. sometimes connected with the records Saul were making for adult club and soul audiences. Tracks like You Spin Me Round and Showing Out were embraced by the kids when those songs broke out from the club scene and then charted. When Kylie came on the scene, the unexpected mega success of I Should Be So Lucky changed everything. That record was a particularly massive hit with kids who knew her from TV, some of them extremely young, and it didn't need nightclub DJs to help it take off. A vast and lucrative audience, pre-teen and early teen record buyers, had made itself felt in that moment. And from then on, they couldn't be ignored. I'd rather Jack was born of that shift. It was a post-Kylie, post-Clubland Saw record. aimed very directly at the younger demographic, instead of seeing them as either incidental or just another part of the pie. Amid this seismic shift at PWL came the Hitman Roadshow, another important change of focus for Waterman. And I know you wish you were there, Gavin.
0: good did the Hitman Roadshow look? I'm sure a lot of our listeners actually got to go to it. For those who aren't familiar with what the Hitman Roadshow was, it was a series of shows in the late 80s and early 90s, with each tour featuring a batch of PWL acts. Whereas Pete Waterman had previously kept his finger on the pulse by working in a dance music record shop or being on top of what was being played in clubs, the Hitman Roadshow allowed him to connect directly with the teen market and monitor which acts got the biggest screams. The Reynolds girls went on tour with the likes of Sunita, Sonia and Big Fun in the first half of 1989. And together with Kylie and Jason, that group of artists really represented what Stock Aitken and Waterman were all about by this point. Young, squeaky clean, teen friendly acts. And I know Matt, that wasn't necessarily a good thing as far as you were concerned.
1: Well, it's complex. I think you can actually have your cake and eat it. You can appeal to kids and also have some level of credibility with other demos. Let's just pause and think about when Saw got it absolutely right. Let's think about Mel and Kim. That, to me, was the sweet spot. Those records pleased the older club crowd while also reeling in the kids with the Tay Tay Tay. But if you're aiming squarely at the kids alone, where does that leave everyone else? Anyone of any age could see Mel and Kim as aspirational and enjoy those records, whether they were 25 and dancing in a club, or whether they were 8 years old and seeing the girls perform on Saturday morning TV. When you cut off that older audience by aiming so young, you might get strong sales from that market, but what damage does it do to your brand long term? When your relationship with that older, quote unquote, cooler audience and the club scene takes a back seat and your brand gets associated with the kiddie label, you're limiting your path forward.
0: Now, this is why I described I'd Rather Jack as a real signpost in the road on our journey through Saw. It and the signing of the Reynolds girls represent to me a real shift towards that younger audience and one from which there was no going back. Sure, the move younger had really started with Kylie and then Jason and even Sunita to an extent, but those singers all had a level of fame before coming to PWL that made them feel like stars that were out of reach of the fans buying their music. The Reynolds Girls felt like two fans plucked out of the audience at a Hitman concert, and given a recording deal and essentially that's what they were and as much as i'd rather jack was meant to represent the way linda and ashling themselves felt about not getting to hear the songs we know on the radio it really could have been any two teams on the track
1: Yeah, I think Waterman saw the Reynolds girls as literally representing Saw's audience at the time. It seems like he felt he could make new stars who the audience related to by plucking singers directly from their ranks. He knew that in 1988-89, fans saw Kylie as one of their own. She was seen as a peer, the girl next door, and he probably thought he could repeat that formula for success with a couple of very ordinary teenage girls. I also suspect he got a bit of a kick out of the idea he could make literally anyone into a pop star.
0: Okay, so we've talked about how the idea for I'd Rather Jack came about, and we've discussed how Linda and Ashling Reynolds came into the picture. But what about the song itself? Let's start with the title, I'd Rather Jack jack of course referred to songs like jack your body and jack to the sound of the underground in other words house and dance music which had been flooding the uk top 40 for the previous couple of years And the song articulated a preference for these type of records over fleetwood mac who had relatively recently released a string of hits from their 1987 album tango in the night and whose back catalog from albums like rumors and tusk were classic rock radio staples Matt, you'd rather Jack than Fleetwood Mac, wouldn't you?
1: Well, I definitely remember resenting Fleetwood Mac at the time, only because they were constantly shoved down our throats, not because I hated their music. But I did detest Die Straits, Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones, and I thought heavy metal was just a joke, but I loved Yaz. So yes, I will concede that the message of the song did fully align with my personal taste at the time.
0: As for the lyrics themselves, they're a pretty compelling argument against then-current radio playlists. What happened to the radio? They never play the songs we know. It was fairly true. But two lines in the lyrics jar for me. The first is, but why the DJ on the radio station? Which really crams in the syllables. This isn't a case of Mike Stock being metaphorical, je ne sais pas pourquoi style, and leaving the listener to paint the picture in their head. These are very distinct points to be made, like presenting an argument. And so those words have got to fit in, no matter what it takes. The other line is demographic stereo. What teenagers would talk like that? That is clear industry speak. And these are clearly Saw's lyrics, not the Reynolds girls.
1: Yeah, well, there was never any doubt in my mind that this wasn't the girls speaking, that they were merely mouthing the Pete Waterman party line. Smash Hits actually asked Ashling if she had a laugh when she first read what they called those preposterous lyrics. She claimed she didn't. Quote, when I first saw them, I thought, they're only words. But we do love the house stuff and Yaz and Bros and Rama. They're all great to sing along to and that's good. Because that's what kids want. They don't want to hear about the problems of the world. They want to go out and have a good time, listen to really fun, good records. And that's what ours is. It's fun. It's not about nuclear waste. It's got a great beat. There's humor in it. And it's now. It's today.
0: I mean, and that is true, it does sound very now. And for me, it's the British equivalent of Australian singer Colette's remake of Ring My Bell, a production that's very influenced by Yaz's The Only Way Is Up and really is the commercialization of the house sound. Let's have a quick listen to Ring My Bell and hear a little bit more of I'd Rather Jack to see how they're really both drawing from the same well.
1: backing track of I'd Rather Jack definitely zips along and has a fun frenetic energy to it. I actually don't mind a lot of the acid housey bits from the so-called from a jack to a king mix. There's some really good moments in there. and It's actually quite strange to hear this sort of very adult acid house sounds in, in a record that's definitely pitched quite young. Let's have a listen.
0: Yeah, I quite like that mix as well. It's a little bit, I guess, older, a little bit more mature than the radio version. And it does show that as usual, Stoke and Waterman can take the sounds that are happening in the clubs and put them on their record.
1: Right. Well, a lot of people thought the general vibe of the seven inch reminded them a bit of Mel and Kim. That sparked rumors it was originally written for those girls. But that's something Mike Stock denied when he spoke to Nick Moon from Ultimate Saw. Quote, That's not true. We did style it in the same way, but it wasn't written for them.
0: There we go. Fairly definitive. The reason I'd rather Jack isn't one of my favourite Saw records is really down to the melody. I find the pre-chorus kinda of monotonous. AMFM oh that jazz. We'd rather sing along with Yaz. And the chorus just doesn't lift like a great, sore record. It's not celebratory. It's basically a three-minute whinge. That all said, I quite like this bit. Funnily enough, the Reynolds girls didn't necessarily share the sentiments contained in the lyrics, despite what they told Smash Hits. Here's Matt Aitken to
2: explain why. The fantastic thing about those girls, we never met them, you know, two, two girls. And um, when they came down and we sat down with them, got to meet them, look, two, two very nice girls. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd put Fleetwood Mac in the lyrics and uh, whatever, I can't remember all the bands we'd put in the lyrics. But we sat down and, and uh, I think Ashlyn had been to university or, or was at university, so I thought, well, she's, you know, she's quite right. So I said, but what sort of music do you listen to, that? Uh And she said, well, Fleetwood Mac, and basically reeled off the list of all the people that they were going to be slagging off in this song.
0: So there you have it. The Reynolds girls would rather Fleetwood Mac. Quite the revelation. The final part of the release we should talk about is the transformation of the Reynolds girls into pop stars because, believe it or not, they did not normally get around Liverpool with those haircuts or that shiny red jacket. Hairstylist Lino Carbosiero was brought in as part of the PWL style team and here's his memories of working with Linda and Ashling. They weren't from a TV background or, a, you know, they were basically plucked off the street. Did they take a little bit of work to transform into pop stars?
4: Yeah. It probably would have been my hardest transformation. I reckon David would say the same. It was the hardest one to make look pop starry. Though when I look back at the work, it was so that time, but I don't like it. It, I'd be very critical of what I did, but that's what was demanded. That's what was asked of me to do. But yes, I would say it was an element of much harder. Everyone else sort of had a background, so then, you know, they they just slotted in. Whereas the Reynolds girls, it was very much, you know, the dad had a lot of influence in it. You know, their, their father was very influential. If if I became famous and they all knocked on my mum's doorstep, she'd have no clue. She'd they'd be inside my house having dinner, you know. She'd be showing photos. So she would have no clue of how to, the, the step that someone has to take. So they, they had that success. That's, there's only a little bit of success, but they didn't have that, what most of the others already had, even maybe on a smaller scale, but they didn't have that. Uh, so the guidance wasn't correct, I don't think. They weren't left alone with with the record company. So it was much harder.
0: What, what was hard about the, the visual side of things for you?
4: It was... Taking two girls off the basic basic of the street and say, right, now I've got to make you feel and look like you're a superstar. So a haircut only works if someone can wear it and think that they're wearing it well. You could give someone the best haircut in the, in the world, but if they feel they have no confidence, someone can have a really terrible haircut have so much confidence, they make you believe that it's the best haircut you've ever seen in your life. It's, it's about confidence. I do feel with them, there was there was this element of, they were enjoying it, there were sweet girls, no doubt about that, there were nice girls, but they weren't really ready for that That's first stage. And then to go on from that, to kick on, you have to have everything in place. And I think I remember rightly there, there was a lot of, outside intro, outside it wasn't like with kylie where it was planned bang 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 jason you're going to be here, here, here. You know, you're, they were told i think i think with the scale scales it was okay i've had one hit now i know what i'm doing it, that's not the case it's not that easy you need to you need to be managed correctly you need to be you need to all follow the same path and if you don't then it's going to have the problems
1: Right, the makeover element was a big part of the publicity drive for this record. Smash Hits did a whole spread on it. I think the idea was to sell the dream that any ordinary kid could become a pop star.
0: I think the styling was fine. I have always wondered, however, what the two of them were blowing out on the single cover. Who could say, Gavin? I wish we knew. Speaking of blowing, it was blowing a gale the day the sisters filmed the music video for I'd Rather Jack. They were almost blown off the Royal Albert dock and into the Mersey. But they looked like they had a ball as they gallivanted around Liverpool, giving each other piggybacks and pulling out moves that looked like they were straight out of a jazzercise routine. As cringy as some moments were, the video worked. There's a certain charm to it, and it really brought the song to life.
1: Well, those dance moves certainly got a workout on the promo trail, judging by all the performances on YouTube. Let's just hope that the girls had a good chiropractor at the end of that, Gavin.
0: What even was that move when they bent backwards over each other? I'm sure it seemed like a great idea at first, but after weeks of doing the routine in promo, I bet they were sick of having to do that one. Okay, all the pieces were in place for I'd Rather Jack to be released, and as I mentioned at the start, it was a top 10 hit, wasn't it?
1: It was. It got to number 8 in the UK, reportedly selling around 100,000 copies. It got to 6 in Finland and Ireland, 7 in Belgium, 8 in the Netherlands, and 43 here in Australia. Now, not exactly a flop, it was a top 10 hit, but it seems the track fell well short of Pete Waterman's lofty expectations. In 2007, he told BBC show The Most Annoying Pop Songs We Hate to Love, and I quote, You can't get the public to buy something that they just don't believe in, and they never believed in the Reynolds Girls. If that song had been Mel and Kim, it'd be a number one record. But because it was the Reynolds Girls, it was the only song we had on top of the pops that went down the next week. Gavin, shots fired.
0: Oh, Pete trying to wash his hands of his own creation. Despite that solid achievement, it wasn't long before the backlash against I'd Rather Jack began. Even at the time, I remember the song, and by extension the duo, becoming a bit of a punchline. Maybe it was because Saw came out swinging and the music industry punched back. Maybe it was because the song verged on being a novelty record. Whatever the reason, I'd rather Jack became an easy punching bag for anti-Saw sentiment.
1: Well, perhaps deservedly so. Kim Appleby herself weighed in on what this track meant for Saw and their image, telling one TV interviewer, The Reynolds Girls thing was awful, and they deserved the backlash for that. That sentiment was also felt on the factory floor with Phil Harding writing this in his book. This record epitomized how bad it could get and confirms to me that this year was the start of the PWL SAW creative downfall. The record was awful, cheesy and corny beyond belief and I felt embarrassed to be associated with the building every time I heard it on the radio. Many others in the building felt the same about it yet no one dared say anything about how horrible the record was for fear of losing their job. Thank God they didn't do another record with them.
0: No, Phil, tell us how you really feel, though. (laughs) For me, there's a clear division in my mind about what I think about I'd Rather Jack and what I think about the Reynolds girls. I don't like the song. I never have. It didn't appeal to me at the time, and it still doesn't. But I have nothing against the sisters. I feel like they were basically used as mouthpieces for PWL's agenda. Of course, they would jump at the chance to record a song with Saw and release it. Of course their lives would change overnight when it was a hit. But was anyone thinking about what that would mean for two teenage girls? Or was everyone just so pleased with themselves for delivering an FU to the music industry that they forgot to take a second to care about Linda and Ashling?
1: Yeah, it's hard not to wonder if the girls were used as cannon fodder. There are various opinions on them within the PWL camp. Certainly Phil Kresik from Big Fun shared some pretty negative views about what they were allegedly like on the Hitman Roadshow. But let's remember their ages. These were kids. One of them dropped out of school for this, which makes what came next for them all the more uncomfortable to consider now.
0: So given the situation around this track, was it any wonder that things quickly turned sour between the Reynolds girls and PWL? This is certainly one of the biggest hot potato moments in pop history.
1: Yeah, it came like a bolt out of the blue. Suddenly it was announced in the pop mags that the girls were leaving PWL, either dumped or choosing to move on to do their own thing. If the latter was the case, it was certainly a bold move. Then the divorce played out in a really unseemly manner over a number of weeks in the pages of Number One magazine, with the girls apparently trying to take the high road at first, saying the split was amicable and it was their decision but Waterman was taking no prisoners. He told the magazine, quote, basically, it just didn't work out with us. It's as simple as that. The thing is, I don't believe in stars. I don't believe that anybody should consider themselves bigger than the public that buys their records. We had a lot of run-ins with the girls. It sounds corny, but we are one big happy family and they didn't fit in basically. But I wish them well. I hope they do great. I really do. In a couple of years, they'll probably realize exactly what they had with us. In the magazine's following issue, the girls at first insisted all was good and that they were still friends with the SAW team. But when pressed on Waterman's claims that they were too big for their boots, Ashling had this to say. I don't know what he means. Me and Linda never had that idea at all. Come on, Pete, what do you mean? We haven't sold as many records as Kylie and Jason, so we don't think we're big stars yet. I can't believe he said that. We really liked him and respected him in everything he does. This is a black mark on the man I thought he was. Nobody else we've worked with thinks we're big headed. Linda added, I was shocked to read it. I was a bit upset, but that's the way it goes. I'm sure everyone else we've worked with would say we're nice girls, so he's got a really weird idea of what big head it is. We really can't afford for the kids to believe that at this point either. And from Ashling again, I don't think Pete likes artists who have a mind of their own. We did. With Saw, you've got to want to be directed in every single field. People might say we're stupid to move away from them, but I'm doing my career my way. If we succeed, brilliant. If we don't, at least we'll have done it our way. Unquote. It could have just ended there and it probably should have, but the next week Waterman used his magazine column to have the final word, phoning in his response from the Hitman Roadshow tour bus. Quote, it's best to make sure when you reply to criticism that you don't do so through rose-tinted spectacles. And always remember that when you do so, there might just be a coach of PWL artists trundling up the A1 to red car. I don't want to slag off the Reynolds girls, but there were 52 jolly faces on a bus going northward on the Hitman tour when we read that. We had a jolly good laugh about what the former saw stars said thoughts gavin
0: it all seems a little bit petty doesn't it all these years later hearing all those quotes being traded week by week in the music in in the teen music press the exact details of what happened remain murky there's the story that a second single with Saw was on the agenda but the reynolds family's personal plans allegedly got in the way
1: Yeah, according to Classic Pop Magazine, allegedly the girl's dad, who was also their manager, had booked a family holiday and refused to cancel it when it clashed with the girl's professional schedule at PWL.
0: When we spoke to David Howells about the Reynolds girls, he was quite guarded in what he had to say. Let's take a listen. What were your thoughts on the Reynolds girls?
3: Remember when I said it's not always the case that it's easy and successful and uh, harmonious, let's say. Um, that was a tricky one yeah i really don't have much to say about it at all it was not a happy period i mean that came in through pete and, and it obviously the first the single worked great i mean it, was, it grabbed the attention and the whole thing took off but it, it, uh, it was tricky to uh, maneuver through did you get the sense that they were on board
0: with the message or were they just happy to be singing a song
3: Oh, They were definitely on, I don't know whether they analysed the message in depth, to be honest, but they were on board and that they had a lot of fun doing it. And obviously they go from nowhere to being on Top of the Pops, Yeah, biggest TV show in Europe, and they delivered.
0: And then after that, that's when things got a bit difficult.
1: Tricky. Let's say they were tricky, yeah. Yep, diplomatic there. So Classic Pop previously quoted David as saying this on the girls. They weren't suited to being pop stars. There's a lot of promotion and publicity, and the sisters didn't appreciate how much hard work it would all be. They were perfectly nice girls, but it was obvious very quickly it wasn't going to work.
0: A second Reynolds Girls single did eventuate, but obviously not at PWL, let's listen to the pointedly titled Get Real, which was released on Renotone Records later in 1989.
1: this record was a real family affair. The Reynolds clan set up their own record label funded by the dad remortgaging the family home. The girls apparently handled their own press, and according to Number One magazine, the track was recorded in the back of a supermarket in Bexley Heath. I'm told the girls said at the time that there was a video shoot, but it's never surfaced to my knowledge. I've never seen that video anywhere. Without a professional team to push this release, it never stood a chance, and predictably, it bombed.
0: What is interesting about Get Real is that the Reynolds girls are listed as co-producers on the track, along with Lord and Elliot. Guess that's what you get when you self-release. Now that wasn't quite the last that was seen of at least one Reynolds sister, was it?
1: Well, apparently not. There are some videos on YouTube that seem to show Linda performing in an early nineties dance band called Hype. While I haven't been able to confirm this anywhere else, the captions on those videos claim the act did some early gigs with Take That. I checked with Nigel Martin Smith and he'd never heard of them. My Take That insider tells me Gary Barlow also had no recollection of Hype. So it's all a bit of a mystery.
0: Now, other than that footnote, the Reynolds girls have essentially gone to ground. They have no social media presence. They have shunned the limelight. They avoided efforts to find them for the PWL concert in 2012. They have not been interviewed anywhere, including by us. If it weren't for the presence of family members on social media, it would be like they never existed. And really, who can blame
1: them? Yeah, from my long experience as a journalist, if ex like this can't be found, it's almost always because they don't want to be. There have been major call-outs to find the girls from the BBC and the Liverpool Echo with no results that tells its own story. I think it's fairly likely the girls got badly burnt by their experience and they just want to put it all behind them. And we respect that. Wherever you are, girls, we hope it all worked out for you. It's worth noting at this point that Waterman has been a bit more reflective about the girls recently and his role in what happened. Certainly a lot more reflective than he was in the pages of number one back in 1989. Here's what he recently said to Gay Times: I think the girls were a bit too young. We didn't understand what the consequences would be when you suddenly thrust two ordinary kids from Liverpool into the limelight. But the song was magnificent.
0: Well, as for the legacy of I'd Rather Jack, it's the Vegemite, or Marmite for our UK listeners, of Saw Records. Many Saw fans either love it or can't stand it. There are very few people who don't have a strong opinion on it. I recently put a call out on Instagram to see what my followers there thought of it. And some of the reactions were, Limp song, but I'm fascinated by the girl's apparent disappearance. Love it. It's fun and energetic, plus it's sore. Another one, incredible, iconic, a lost treasure. Fun, but I'd definitely rather Fleetwood Mac. Love it. I've never understood why so many people believe there's something wrong with this record. Too cheesy for me. A guilty pleasure, if ever there was one. One of the worst Saw tracks ever, up there with the England football team and Roland Rat, And awful, a travesty. So that's pretty much the full gamut of extreme emotions. For some people, it even represents the beginning of the end for Saw. And by some people, I mean Matthew Demby. And this is where I put a note in the episode rundown for Matt saying, have at it.
1: Well, let me just clarify first, Gavin, that there are still many, many brilliant Saw records to come over the next few years. A bunch of their very finest records are still ahead of us, like the one next episode. But to me, this record ended a nearly unbroken dream run. I remember the first time I was exposed to this song. I saw the video on TV in early 89 and my heart just sank. I sometimes joke that was the day that the music died Of course really it didn't die But my faith in Saw's judgement was shaken for the first time Since I'd become an almost religious devotee of their music I no longer felt that they were always going to be on the same page as me I was now 17 at this point And just couldn't connect with the Reynolds girls at all They weren't aspirational to me at that age And what they were singing was just embarrassing What's more I knew that this record hadn't been made for me And I wondered what that meant and where things were now going In my view, I'd rather Jack represents a major misstep for Saw. They were moving from the cutting edge of dance pop, you know, songs with wide appeal for everybody, into something a lot more juvenile, and the consequences of that were going to be felt pretty severely soon enough. But I understand that many, many people don't see things that way, and love and adore this record, whether ironically or genuinely, because it's just so pop. That's fine and that's valid. I hear you and I see you. I did a Twitter poll where about two thirds of the people who responded said they love this record, but it's not for me, Gavin.
0: Well, after this episode, Matt, you never have to listen to it again. But what about Pete Waterman's issues with the state of radio? Well, it would take until 1993, coincidentally the same year as the end of the Stock and Waterman partnership, for major change to come to Radio 1 under controller Matthew Bannister, with the dad jokes and the aging DJs behind them given the boot for a younger, cooler talent roster and a ban from music from before 1990, which, of course, includes I'd rather Jack and as for the age-old question Jack or Fleetwood Mac well it's interesting that in the recently released stats by the official charts company about the highest streamed song released in each year of their 70 year history that Fleetwood Macs everywhere is the most streamed song released in 1988 so the Mac have endured 1989's most streamed song not I'd rather Jack but instead Billy Joel's angry history lesson. We didn't start the fire. Golden oldies indeed. As I've mentioned, we haven't spoken to Linda or Ashling for this episode. I did manage to track down Linda's son and tried to do an O.G. Brown. And by that, I mean get the child of a former pop star to convince their parents to do the podcast. But although it seemed like she was considering it, it ultimately didn't happen. And that's a shame, because the PWL version of the story has been told and told again. But the Reynolds girls have never spoken about their pop experience. Theirs wouldn't be the first ill-fated tale we've heard on this podcast, so if they ever decide to go on the record, we'd love to be the outlet for that to happen.
1: Yeah, I'd love to hear that story. But moving forward, I'm pleased to say that we're about to cover one of Saw's greatest ever records. You could say we're going from the ridiculous to the sublime. We're going to ascend to the heights of pop perfection next time with the return of the queen of disco herself, Donna Summer, a record that reconfirms the absolute genius. Of stock Aitken and Waterman
0: and in the bonus content for this episode we have a Reynolds girls adjacent extra for you as part of my conversation with backing singer Suzanne Radigan who sang on odd rather Jack we talked about that track but also her own experience launching herself as an artist in her own right and her issues with demographic stereo as always to listen to the bonus material head to chartbeats.com.au saw where you can subscribe to listen to the bonus material for this episode and every episode And in the bonus material for the Donna Summer episode, we're going to be counting down our listeners' favourite tracks from Another Place in Time. So if you haven't ranked them yet, please get those rankings in. Like you, Matt, I can't wait to get to this time. I know it's for real in seven days' time.
1: Such a great record. Can't wait to see you then, everybody.
0: Okay, bye for now.
1: Bye. Bye.